1: Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's a delight to do so with our dear friends, Hugh Hallman, former mayor of Tempe, attorney in town, among other things, educator, and so many, so much more, and his son, Louis Hallman, who is the managing director of Insight Analytics and so much more. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Love having you when you're in town on Tuesdays. Always a pleasure, Seth. Thank you, brethren. Um, two parables... That might be worth thinking about for launching this discussion. I spoke of one earlier uh, from—I guess it's an old Asian tale. We can't pinpoint it directly, but it's called All God's Creatures Have Work to Do. It involves two oarsmen—or really, yes, an oarsman and a a consort to a king, their cousins— and, uh, Lewis was mentioning on the way in, he had another, um, he had another Asian tale of yore that might help explain some of the times we're in. But, uh, either of you can talk it wherever, take it wherever we want to go. Hugh, Lewis, however you'd like to. Start. What
2: I would like to do is set the table a little bit because your okay. monologue really, uh, and if, if you didn't hear his monologue in the first hour, go and get the podcast because it's a monologue describing, uh, craziness in my view it is uh two stories out of the new york times describing what's going on in washington dc that there are employees young employees at the state department telling our secretary of state how he's messing up in the israel uh, hamas dispute and that you know palestinians need to be heard and we need to have a a a a shutdown of the uh, current uh, war um and then you've got the same thing going on with congressional democrat Staffers, uh, same stuff with the staffers going out on the steps of the Capitol uh, to complain about deaths of Palestinians in Gaza and that these young people are all protesting against their employers positions on these issues. And I take that as an uh, as an example, as your monologue uses to launch that we've got uh What we've discussed before, sort of five minute experts with so little training and understanding of the universe that they are taking positions without any real wisdom grown from broader experience, deeper knowledge, a better education for that matter about the policies, the principles and the philosophy that gave rise to the United States in the first instance. And with that as the table, I think Lewis has some insight that I I think we ought to tease out in this hour about why we're in this position with these uh, very different perspectives on the universe.
1: And one—sorry, Lewis, just one little adjunct to it, which— Maybe we'll let you talk, Lou. We'll (laughs) let you talk, I promise. One just slight adjunct to it, which isn't the most germane part of this, but also that organizations we used to take seriously, like the New York Times, are taking these children seriously. That's a part of this, too.
2: These uneducated uh, children with a lack of wisdom and experience to inform— their opinions, as we've often described, everybody has opinions. Only some of them are informed.
1: Uh, there you go, Lewis. I, I, <laughs> before you burst,
3: okay. I actually don't don't mind that they uh, uh, have opinions. The existence of the opinions, or even the fact that they're, they're incorrect opinions that I disagree with, is not necessarily what what irritates me about these staffers necessarily. I think the the more objectionable piece to me is that. Their salaries are paid by the taxpayer, not just their congressional masters, but by federal taxpayers, all of us collectively. And instead of then representing our interests and doing the good business of government and trying to actually do the things that we are paying them for, they've elected instead to abdicate that duty and instead spend their time in personal political campaigning
2: doing walkouts the the, right. the state department folks held a walkout uh not doing their jobs in order to protest against Anthony Blinken's position on Israel at the moment
3: and and if you object to the position on Israel that that's 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 fine but there's a lot of other work i would imagine on the hill that needs to be done particularly as we Uh, are are potentially facing a government shutdown, those types of things. There are a lot of other issues that might bear reasonable attention from staffers. But before I get too off topic, I think we we started this conversation about a parable, I think, that that might also uh, illuminate some of where we are. Now, my South Asian parable is uh, uh, the one about the five blind men and the elephant, uh, wherein uh, five blind men are examining an elephant, each... Actually, uh, they're monks, uh, so maybe, you know, they could have been... <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, um, I won't go there. Uh, so they're, they're examining the different the different parts of the elephant. You know, one uh, touches the trunk, one the leg, one the ear, one the tail, and they all have... Silk
1: purse, one thinks, right? They all
3: right, right. And they, they all think because they have a localized understanding of what this elephant is, that that they've grasped the truth of the whole and yet have a very different understanding of what that elephant is, and I'm reminded very much of our political environment, wherein the issues that we have to deal with are not only so complex and multifaceted that they could uh, uh, beggar the understanding of a single mind, but the, the, we are also coming at it from a, a variety of different ethical uh, uh, presuppositions as well, and so we're left at the point where the two parties are describing a world that seems foreign to one another, where it seems like we have no overlap in our political conversations. Nevertheless, though, I would argue that both are tangentially related to reality. We're both trying to uh, uh, understand what is going on. But because those filters are so disparate, it sounds like we have a very alien understanding of what the other is seeing and that we're not actually then sharing the same kind of reality.
2: Which I would argue... I should just say, I'm going to argue that the the real issue of the five-minute expert that we've been complaining about recently, that uh, ivermectin is described by somebody on CNN right. six minutes after that person's first been introduced to it, so they can talk about how ridiculous it is, and they've formed an opinion with no understanding, that the, the monks have very different perspectives on this universe of the elephant, uh, because they have not, grasped around the elephant enough and continued to move and grow in their wisdom. These young people storming the hill or storming out of their offices to uh, protest at the hill are all people who have even smaller universes that they've touched. They have not grown in wisdom. They don't have experience. And they've frankly had Probably pretty terrible educations that they don't have an understanding, an idea of the philosophy that gave rise to the United States. And so while the the monks might have been grasping the trunk or a leg or an ear or a tail, uh, these people remind me of those who are grasping the toenail of the elephant. That's how little grasp on the bigger picture they have. But that's not them alone. I would say that there are probably many people in this debate who have very little understanding of the bigger picture. We talked a couple of shows ago about the fact that where you, and this was Lewis's point, where you stand or your position on what's going on between Israel and Hamas says as much about you and your knowledge as it does about the issue itself, that we've got thousands of years of history here, and where one begins or ends the history is what informs one's position. I think we have described that the the differences from the left and the right have a lot to do with what we believe is a conservative grasp of human um, the human existence and what it is to be human and, uh, and human beings, and the left's continuing belief that they can remold human nature into something that it is not. It does, however, and this I have to credit to Lewis, goes back to about... Eight or nine months ago, a conversation about liberty, uh, égalité, fraternité. Where you put the weight on those three French concepts uh, of their revolution determines in large part where you end up on the political spectrum. And those who are bemoaning what's happening to Palestinians in Gaza clearly put more of their weight on the fraternity piece of it, that they are more concerned about any... I actually
3: think it's the egalite. Uh, you think so? Yes, yeah, it's just hu- universal human suffering rather than a uh, notion of an individualized brotherhood.
2: Well, I, I think it's the brotherhood of man, but th- that's the point. We've got two facets alone of that dynamic, and conservatives tend to put much more weight on liberty, that we are motivated first by an understanding that we are all better off If we allow every one of us to exercise his liberties to the point of not interfering with others and that that starts the process. And then we have to describe how much limitation we put on individual actors uh, activities and that that's what I think informs the way we view the world in contrast to the way the liberals do. Both from Lewis's point about uh, you've got monks touching a different part of the elephant and being ill-informed about the entire universe, but also we start with your monologue so, that we have a whole group of people so ignorant about the universe that they, they are touching such a small piece.
3: When we come back, I, I really want to pick up on something you said uh, about... For once. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I, I, I want to actually bring this back also to... How the two differ in their views about the world as well.
1: Let's do that and also point out before we leave this segment that it is interesting that they do take up this Robespierrean notion where they end up speaking of liberty, fraternity or or egalitarianism egalitarianism, and end up on the side of the guillotine. That's the interesting thing to me. We'll come back on all of this with the Hallmans. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leepson Show. Will you play versions of this for us? This is kind of a—it's a long, nice song. There's a lot in there for I'll be us. I'm going to
3: just keep playing versions well, of Well, No, we've got to get to here
1: at some point. I'm Seth Leepson. Hugh Hallman is my guest, along with Lewis Hallman, Lewis from Insight Analytics LLC. Hugh Hallman, an attorney in town, former mayor of Tempe, and educator. Lewis uh, we were talking about analogs to the French uh, triad and uh, other things
3: well one one of the things that that Dad you'd mentioned before we went on the break was um, one of the key distinctions between conservative thinking and and more liberal or progressive thinking uh, is that, and the issue that you cited was that those on the left tend to think that we are a blank slate and that our nature is very mutable, while on the right we think that that is uh, uh, significantly less true and that human nature is generally more fixed. I think that there's there's another really fundamental distinction here that needs to be drawn as well, and that's on what each side sees as the opportunity cost, that is to say the trade-off between the world we live in and the one that we are considering when we we submit policy decisions and we think about where we're trying to go. I would argue that a conservative uh, uh, generally thinks that the alternative to this world is one rooted in historical reality, maybe an older form of republicanism, maybe the monarchy, maybe a fall and slide into communist uh, 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 horror, depending on what the, the the path that they see in front of them is and what the trade-off in question is. But generally, there is a strict comparison to something that has happened that we talk about whose state and impacts we know. Now, on the left, by contrast, I don't think that they have the same kind of opportunity cost, that they don't think of the, the, the trade-off of today's political reality in the same way. I think that for the left, the trade-off is not a fixed historical thing that we have seen and understand. It is a more abstracted utopia and that, I think, is at the root of a lot of the problems that we have in conversation. Because when we think about trade-offs, my realistic trade-off, if we don't get the business of government correct, is a backslide into worse economic realities, the type of which we saw before the Industrial Revolution and, and, and earlier. That That is not the trade-off that the left sees. The left generally sees the trade-off, the march of progress towards some goal that we can arrive at and improve to that we can then engineer top down.
1: Is this not, in some respects, orthodox Marxism, where Karl Marx thought... I think it's could-
3: actually, it, it's wider than that. This is a feature of Marxism, but it extends beyond Marxism to a lot of of progressive thinking in general, not just Marxism. The idea that there's this sort of... of uh, utopic end state is sure. definitely a feature of Marxist thinking, sure. but it's also a feature of, of quite a lot of thought on the left. Well, I I think the progressives take,
1: no. I, whether wittingly or not, I think the progressive movement is derivative of Karl Marx and, and is educated by it, again, whether wittingly or not, the idea that you can perfect human nature or overcome it this way, that we shall be as gods, as Whitaker Chambers said, being the second oldest religion in the world in his description of communism. But there is this nasty thing, this N-word, isn't there, this N-word we can't speak about, nature, this human nature thing we can't get rid of.
2: Um, Uh, uh, I'm going to join Lewis in the notion that it isn't isn't just Marx. Marx depended on it, this notion that human nature was mutable.
1: Yeah, sure.
2: And we saw that, though, in ancient Greek thinking as well, that we could have philosopher kings ultimately because we would have people so enlightened, well, you're still dealing with human beings. And what I find fascinating is two things we talked about uh, last time, that we have this notion, and it was because I listened to us <laughs> while I was running a half marathon this weekend. And
1: that's by the way. You did very well. well
2: it, it came to mind that it's ironic that the left is decrying what the West is. It's the anti-Westernism that Lewis has raised as a main theme of their uh, disgust. When we are uh, happy to admit that what is the best of Western culture came out of the Middle East and ancient Middle East um, and the thinking at the time, the Code of Hammurabi and everything that was ginned up in the earliest ages that come out of the Old Testament and other things that were happening and going on in Baghdad and other places. Al-Frabi we talked about from 900. All these ideas were taken by our own founders who looked back into that ancient history and said, here's the human condition, here's what human beings are, let's not pretend that they're mutable, let's take them where they are and build a system based on the greatest thinking from those times and pull it forward. Madison himself, in the Federalist Papers, makes many a comment about how brilliant one must be to have that much historical knowledge and improve upon it. As, of course, Publius, he's writing uh, anonymously about how wonderful he is in having drafted the Constitution. The point is, isn't it ironic that the left is anti-Western? When those of us who are conservatives and conserving something, we are conserving the concepts that our founders grasped from ancient history that they slightly improved upon by accepting that human nature is a very difficult thing to deal with and pitting human beings' interests against one another in order to protect us from each other.
1: Something ironic about the entire debate here with regard to Western civilization Or whatever we want to call the norms now that we appreciate of Western civilization, be it from the Enlightenment, be it from representative democracy, one man, one vote, uh, women's rights, um, human rights, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of um, the exercise, freedom of religion. It's always been an interesting tension in open societies that embrace these things as to how to prevent them from becoming the suicide pact that the modern progressive would turn it into, using those very uh, norms of Western civilization, or whatever you want to put as its Fonzette or ruchio, using those very norms to undo and take us to a retrograde system that would be perhaps described as medieval using for example this has always been the tension of the open society using for example the norms of free speech to advocate for tyranny let us say.
2: And and I will tell you you may have convinced me to some degree you did a monologue on speech uh, and referenced the fact that George Will wrote a piece oh, uh, the, in uh, the 19th... piece
1: Josh Hammer and I did. Right, correct. right, right. Campus uh, and free speech. Right. That is yeah, correct. Right, that right, there
2: right. is some speech that does not fit within the political realm because it is contrary to the entire political uh, uh, enterprise, the the entire uh, political enterprise at which we are about. And that may have been, you may finally have convinced me that the libertarian perspective on allowing those to speak, even those who would destroy free speech, can be brought be, uh, brought to heel on the grounds that, in fact, such... Uh, argumentation is against the entire political exercise that allows us to have this condition in the first instance.
1: It is interesting. So, and we so, can come back to that just, yeah, because we'll go take the break, Lewis, and I'll let you weigh in here for uh, when we come right back. And thank you for that, Hugh. We can talk more about it. It's a controversial position, I know, but it is interesting that those yelling the loudest analogs to, Hey, Hey, Ho, Ho, Western Civ has got to go only have that right because Western Civ gave it exists. To them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me have you weigh in, Lewis, when we come back. I know you have a lot and we have to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back with the Holmans. When one asks for Barbara Streisand, they don't expect Monty Budwig because he was a great double bass player backing her up, young David. This has been a very remedial day for you.
2: I don't know actually that uh, Monty Budwig
3: ever actually backed Monty. Uh, for the uh, sake
1: Stresand. of argument, and we'll Barbara Streisand. But yes. One takes the
3: point. Yes. Mr. Holman younger so we were discussing free speech before the break making the point that (laughs) (laughs) that sorry ladies and gentlemen (laughs) we we had had a a, a pause for (laughs) laughter (laughs) so like i was saying we we were discussing free speech before the break talking about the notion that uh, um the paradox of tolerance means that uh uh it's very difficult for for speech to be truly open to everything that there are there is some category of content some category of expression that is so uh, and I hate this phrase, but I'm going to steal it from the left. So toxic, so destabilizing to the social accord that, uh, uh, were we to permit it, that things would disintegrate. See, um, I don't know
2: what I thought I was saying, but Lewis summed it up as the paradox of tolerance. Yeah, that's, that's what, what I That's what it is. That's, that's, what, that's what we were both trying right,
1: to exactly. say. You got, you got it. it. Exactly. Yeah, you got it.
3: And so, you know, w- right. w- with this paradox, w- one of the things I'm struck by m- most is how what we perceive as destabilizing to society changes so drastically over time. Uh I I would note the obscenity laws of the 50s. Uh uh you know, we uh uh, uh can't uh, uh we can't curse on the radio certainly, but uh uh well, there, there, there were words. Uh 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 you know, significant criminal penalties uh uh formerly that culturally we now seem to be much much more tolerant of. Yeah, sure. Um we then have uh, uh sort of the modern day version of this uh, that you see is uh, the the pronoun politics, the identity politics that you see very often, where uh, uh, speech, uh, particularly uh, referential speech, uh, is is viewed as violence if, if you use the wrong three-letter word uh, uh, to refer to someone. It's a it's a fascinating notion, but it it is one that has evolved considerably over the years. Um, I'm not sure, given how how it's changed, it's hard for me to identify any specific one category of speech that i think is like permanently verboten other than something that that is you know some sort of true horrific incentive to to call to violence something like that
1: well that's what the, the law issue, says now the issue yeah, with
3: what, with demarcating that though is that it's very difficult to establish what is a legitimate call to violence or what legitimately constitutes harm because we get into that that argument and then we're in the same landscape that that the pronoun people are at arguing that that uh, uh, if one were referred refer to me as she, that that would cause me undue bodily harm or spiritual harm or something speech like that. Speech is
2: violence. Violence is speech. Right.
3: right. And so I, I always find this, and this is a bit of a tangent, I always find this the, the, the pronoun thing fascinating. Um, it is a bizarre and it is a totalizing sort of occurrence. And the yeah, reason that, it. that, I, that yeah. I say that yeah. is that Whenever I'm, I'm being lectured to refer someone's pronouns, they, they always speak to me about third person pronouns. Mm-hmm. he, she, it, they, they generally. Yeah, right. And then whatever nonsense, if you want to include the leaf, the
1: leaf, yeah, right. no right, Now right. That, now we
3: get common Rainbow. nouns. Yeah, yeah, right, right. You, we, we can argue about those, but but we, we have all of these, and these are all third person pronouns. You use third- person pronouns in conversation when you're talking about someone who isn't in the room. Mm-hmm. seth if if, if right. we're having a conversation right. Right. there is no circumstance under which I would have the opportunity to say she right. to misgender you because we're here talking about it, uh, you know to one another in fact, the, the people only, in the room
1: get offended the, Used to, the only
3: right? time the only time though that you would have the opportunity to take offense if I were to misgender you and call you she, you would have to be listening to a conversation about you in a different room that doesn't even pertain to you. It is deluded and an authoritarian impulse.
2: That's what I thought is interesting. Lewis brought this up to me today, that those who are so focused on their pronouns are trying to control a conversation in which they're not a participant. Yeah. Because the pronouns, as Lewis is saying, are third person.
3: Well, they Seth, if if you were to be upset about being called she, for instance, right... You, you, there would never be a, a, any circumstance where we are conversing where I would use the word she. Sure. But they want you to. Again, overcoming
1: human nature, they right. want to do that. They want to be more than one person. No,
2: no, no, no. no. Let, let's not broaden it. His point is very simple, and it is this, that the person who's complaining about my use of their pronouns yeah. has to be complaining about a conversation in which they were not a participant. They want to control a conversation in which they were not part.
1: I remember— at right? the I'm table. referring
2: to no. she said this instead of saying he said this, yeah and misgendering in there well if that person were here I would say you said
1: this. yeah absolutely Ma- I remember at the dinner table when we would complain about mom and call her mom and say a, she she would get very offended She'd it is say, a busy
3: notion you know. to control the conversation of people that you are not even in the room for. Yeah. It yeah. is a totalizing and very, very strange impulse that you control the perception of you in the minds of others universally.
1: But you can't escape that that complicating factor where some people do want to be, the they do want the she and they for the I. Let me pick up on that when we come right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. There's a reason he plays everything he plays. I was telling him about meatloaf earlier. Picked up a hijacker once, very famous hijacker who. Uh, Anyway, it's a story for another time. We're talking about uh, language and uh, totalitarian. How did you. What was the phrase? It's not totalitarianism, but. Totalitarian impulse. Totalitarian impulse. And that's right. And we know. Uh, from Orwell and even before, that those that can control the language can control the life. Right? It all starts with the language that we're forced to use, whether it's even whether it's coerced confessions or forced confessions or forcing people to say things. That is what we are seeing right now in these pronoun wars. That's what you're talking about, isn't it? A
3: Absolutely. Bit, yes. Know. Yeah. It, it's the it's the notion that the the wholeness of my identity that that the, that my Uh, uh, self-image that my sense of well-being and and sense of self is Dependent not only of, about how I see myself, right, right. but how two other people right. in another room having a conversation right. about me, they must also see me at all times in such a manner that causes, that is in accordance with my own mental wishes. And, it's a, and if they do not, in the privacy of their own minds in another room while they are talking about me, if they do not agree to to meet my mental image of myself at all times, then I can then... Uh, describe this as some sort of uh, uh, violence.
1: It's a little bit of a callback to what I said was adjunct to the story of the New York Times taking these uh, 20-year-olds too seriously in this sense, too. A friend of mine here at work, uh, works down the hallway, was telling me about an experience at a drive through last night where he was waiting. You know how sometimes you go through the drive through and you have to pull over and wait for them to bring you your food? Sure. And the person brought him his uh, hamburger and fries or whatever it was, and he, about to drive off, said, thanks, buddy. And the person got very offended, saying, I'm not a buddy, I'm a she. And I said to him, well, I I, I hope you took it down and and, and wrote that down so that you know how to address them when you invite them to your house for your your house. I mean, what— reason in the world do we think this interaction which will never occur between these two people ever again is so important that this person had to correct them on that point
3: again it's 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 this notion that that the personal, whatever reason well it's the notion that that you know identity and and my self-image has such a material impact on the world that that the world ought to change to conform with it and that I only get
1: validation as an entity in this world, an entity of worth in this world, by how you feel about me, not how I feel about me.
2: Correct. Right. I will give the best argument for why the person can be offended at, hey, buddy, or thank you, buddy, that they are trying to bring to this person who makes the statement the sensitivity to be more mindful and pay attention to what's presented before them and address it that way. That's the best argument I can make. And that there are those who uh, feel certainly there have been uh, communities within these United States that have been treated less than because of an outward appearance uh, that they present to the universe. And that has been the basis on which people made decisions. But that is in part why I am uh, who I am raised by people who now would be uh, thought of as bigots because they viewed the right right progress was to stop allowing people and to not themselves make decisions based on outward appearance uh, that had nothing to do with merit uh, or quality of character. Uh, The Martin Luther King speech now perhaps could not be given because the content of one's character is not sufficient and that one must make the distinctions based on the color of one's skin for some other purpose. And that is a backward direction. And the 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 point about pronouns is very similar, that somehow there is a level of attention being paid by those for whom this is an important matter uh, that that pronoun as spoken by me measures in their universe as more important than it ought to. And I am quite happy to explain, as I have on this show, that I. I am happy to allow you to take whatever pronoun you want to do. You can choose to do whatever you'd like to in your life uh, to become something else. That's your choice. But that is a very different understanding than those who believe that they have a right to now educate young children about these kinds of choices long before those children are even inculcated with the notion of what it is to be human and exist in a in a in a binomial universe, let alone one that's uh continuous. continuous. That's a great way to put it, Lewis.
3: You
1: know, I'm on the razor's edge of this because half the time I totally am on that point and on point with you. And half the time I'll hear people say I'm not gonna do that because I'm not going to substantiate the lie and buy into the um the distortive view of the world that you want me to buy into. And I don't know where
3: to fall on that spectrum. I, I, I generally and and I we might just say, be polite and
1: move on. We might just say, be polite and move on and save the fight for shows like this. Frankly, than, that's
3: not a bad approach. You know, it, it very rarely is worth the time in one's day to day life to kick, kick up a massive fuss. And yeah. it, it, it frankly <laughs> is, it's frankly easier to just say, OK, buddy. Or okay, not buddy, <laughs> yeah. as the case may be. <laughs> and, uh, oh, is that the right
2: response? So it's buddy or not buddy?
3: I don't know. I don't That's, know. What it would be a, I uh, like uh,
2: this. That's how we're going. Buddy or
1: anti-buddy? You know. I'm not. <laughs> 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 right, right. But I take the point that what's buddy back to normalize you an awful lot of delusion, and what is different in the global might be particularly different on the one-on-one basis. But I am worried about normalizing delusion and putting the delusional in control, the inmates taking over the sanitarium, if you will.
2: Well, we, we certainly see that but I also coming, believe in politeness, so. coming full circle, that we've got inmates taking over the sanitarium at uh, the Capitol with the Democratic staffers and at uh, the State Department, State. Uh, where you've got people who are ill-educated or badly educated, which would you choose, um, who don't have very much wisdom, don't have great experience And uh, who in the New York Times are quoted as talking about the horrors that they are having to face at the State Department. Oh, I don't know. In contrast with the horrors of watching 1,200 of your brethren be slaughtered by people who have broken into your country to murder innocents. I don't know.
1: But um Lincoln says I understand you're upset. Yes, because yes, yes. you don't mean, like the policy. Yeah, yes, you're you're from the re- safety of Foggy Bottom. So,
3: exactly, exactly. The yeah. safety yeah. of Foggy <laughs> Bottom <laughs> right. says it all. Right. As, as we can, you know, as we can can criticize them, I, I also have to point out though that I don't hate that they're doing this. I, like, I, I am fine to have people that I politically disagree with loudly and vociferate, make fools of themselves in yeah. front of the media and give free filler for conservative attack ads, which brings That's us fine by me, brings
2: us full circle to Seth's monologue that you must listen to, because the parable that he is describing is that at the end of that story. There is justice brought to the person who ignores wisdom, who, does, who did not participate in learning, who did not work hard to yeah. achieve a position, and then resents the fact that someone else did.
1: And wonders why they're not taken seriously. Right. And right. Wonders, right.
2: wonders why they are not in that same position right. to exercise power and authority. And the right answer is because it takes a whole heck of a lot of hard work. And uh, those of us who live by our resumes do so because it proves that we have done something that makes our opinions at least informed. And that's the difference.
1: We'll put a bow on it when we come right back. I love Asian parables. Bring, bring one a week. Bring a parable a week. Okay. No, <laughs> Can we
2: instead bring an article a week that is ridiculous?
1: Yeah. We have a few of those, too, yes. we didn't get to. We have a large and increasing stack. Holman's and I will be right back with a final thought. Well, yesterday was uh, November thirteenth, which was an important day because it was the day that uh, Felix Oscar uh, Felix uh, Unger was asked to remove himself from his place of residence. Today is uh, the day they discovered the Edmund Fitzgerald, November fourteenth, right uh, on the Chippewa down, right there, uh, courtesy of um, Gordon Lightfoot and Young David and Young David. Anyway. Is that all we got on this?
2: It's delightful. Well, I guess you're I'm, I'm looking at me to wrap this up yeah, in a I bow. Am. And I want to bring full circle. Almond so, pear, if
1: I'm not mistaken.
2: Uh, yeah, here we go again. I need the cream. Um, uh, the, uh, the monologue today really starts out on the notion that we need to uh, reward those who have earned the right to be leaders. And it's an irony that uh, the Republican Party cause and conservatives generally, beginning about 20 years ago, wanted to throw aside those who had worked in the fields, uh, worked in the trenches to move us in a conservative direction. And the notion of being a, quote, professional politician, unquote, and uh, part of the, quote, establishment, unquote. Well, I happen to have worked in those vineyards for decades and was subject to that clarion cry in the uh, 14 cycle, in fact. And I realize that that is part of what we as conservatives are missing, are those who have served long enough to be wise enough to know how to address governmental systems and move the needle in the direction we want it moved, to get the ball to mix metaphors downfield, and that those who would destroy some of our best uh, players are up in the bleachers with rifles shooting away at our own team because they're not performing by running straight down the field. And this is an environment in which we've got to have people who can bob and weave and get through the defenses of the other side to get the touchdowns we so want. And the five-minute experts... Uh, are too many, and those who have spent time to become wise about how to move this uh, game forward for the
3: right causes are too few. Democrats are typically institutional and centralized. Republicans typically favor decentralized sources of power. But as our statesmen in the Republican Party become more and more proficient, they take on that centralization character. It makes them seem like Democrats to us in a way. And it's what makes, I think, a lot of the conservative party base very leery of that sort of careerism.
2: And my response would be careerism is one thing, but listen to the policies. It's the same reason that I choose Ukraine, Taiwan and Israel over the opponents, because I look at the character of what they are doing and the philosophies they are uh, based in and moving the ball in the right direction where Hamas, China and Russia are not.
1: Yeah, it's about who the friend and ally is and who the enemy is, too. It is that these distinctions matter. That is the true task of political science, understanding these distinctions. Um, There's so much more to say. We're out of time Hallmans, thank you for being here. Audience, thank you for being with us as well. Until tomorrow, on behalf of Hugh Lewis and David, I'm Seth Liebsen. God bless you all. Class is dismissed